This is the Dallas Morning News. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pal, Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. Hello, old pal. You know, our old pal, David Moore, is out at the owners' meetings, and we would have had him on, but apparently he uh, checked his laptop and it came down the ramp in, you know, 15 pieces or something like that. You know, I actually did that one time. Not a laptop, but a a silent 700 is what we call those. It sounded like something that a, a James Bond would have used, right? A silent 700. Uh, but anyway, I, I checked one one time. And it did come down the uh, carousel in several pieces. Yeah, never never check a laptop. Never check no. a, a, what you're going to write on. No, no. Well, you know, I don't know that he uh, uh, actually did that, but it, it crashed, and so therefore Dave is not available to us. But, you know, we're, we're communicating with him by smoke signal. And so it's been great, and we've, we've really got some great updates from him and expect to get some more. We will talk about the Cowboys uh, and some of the moves they've made. We've got a lot of stuff going on around here these days. We've got uh, the, the, the men's and women's Final Four. We've got the women's Final Four right here in Dallas. Uh, and we've got, uh, of course, the Mavericks continuing to plummet through the uh, Western Conference. And on Thursday, we've got the Rangers – Opening day. Opening day with the Rangers. It's always a fun time, isn't it, Devin? It is. I mean, opening day at the MLB opening day is like things that baseball does really well are opening day and the All-Star game. I think they do that better than any other sport. Um, And it just – it feels more like a holiday than it does any other any other sport when the start of the baseball season rolls around. Yeah, that's right. No question about it. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the Rangers have quite a lineup uh, for Thursday. Um, kind of interesting, all the uh, the people who are in this kind of thing. You know, Evan, I'm trying to think back over the years for opening day uh, and who the uh, you know the celebrities have been uh, for the for the uh, festivities and. Uh, I don't know. I kind of like it when we limit it to to sports celebrities myself. I don't know. I, when we start getting outside the realm of sports, it, it starts to feel like we're trying to make some kind of statement that we, we really don't want to make, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think where you're going with this, Kevin, is when we get, you know, people don't like politics and sports. So let's just keep politics out of sports. So yeah. let's keep politicians out of sports. I mean, the Astros are bringing out me, uh, Megan the Stallion to throw out the first pitch on opening day. Um, She's a huge baseball fan. Apparently so. I, I, I mean, I wish the Rangers had somebody like that to, to bring out, but but alas, they're not. Um, I will say this. The Rangers are bringing out a, a 21-year veteran of the uh, – of the Texas Rangers law enforcement unit. I should point this out that the Rangers like to let people know that they are, are in no way, shape or form affiliated with the Texas Rangers law enforcement unit. But Lieutenant Mankin, who will throw out the first pitch, will be accompanied by former President George W. Bush, who is always good to show up for a first pitch here. Sure. And by te- Texas Governor Greg Abbott, 
who, despite the fact that two years ago swore he was never going to attend baseball games anymore, uh, will be, uh, I think, participating in his third or fourth first pitch. The Rangers have not had an opening day starter throw as many first pitches as Greg Abbott has. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the lineup. Also, I think Nolan Ryan will – I know Nolan Ryan will be on hand. He will escort Lieutenant Mankin as well. And, again, Nolan's always good for a first pitch. I don't know if he's, like, consulting on the delivery or what, but I don't believe he's going to throw it. Um, And Pudge Rodriguez will be behind the plate to catch the first pitch. So – Maybe no one's going to show him that circle change. I don't know. You know, it, it does seem pretty bizarre that no one's no one's going to escort him to the mound. I just I don't really get that. It's it's like is this his court? I mean, what's what's going on here? I mean, I, listen. You know, you you remember that first pitch that Nolan threw out before the 2010 World Series, and he leg kicked it, and that ball I think came in around 90 miles an hour. Remember Jim Sundberg was shaking his hand after he caught the ball with his mitt. Nolan's 75 now, and I, I I don't think anybody wants to see him struggle to get the ball from the mound to to home plate. The shoulder is the shoulder and the elbow are gone. I think everybody will just appreciate the fact that once again, Nolan Ryan and the Texas Rangers have a, a positive relationship. So whether Nolan comes to the mound, whether he brings the rosin bag, whatever he does, it'll be good to see him out there again. Oh, there's no question about that. Yeah, I, this this need to be done, and and it is done now. And the you know the the relationship has been they've been building that back now for a number of years. Obviously, it came back in the form of Nolan Ryan's fine meats. Uh, but it uh, first it, it always has to come that way first, right? Uh, but now it's great to have him back and and to have him around. I, I'm looking forward to that. So. That'll be a lot of fun. All right, so that's enough talk about uh, opening day festivities. Let's talk about uh, the, the the team itself. Evan, I know hey, we, you we, met, we we forgot to mention one celebrity though. Who was that? Rob Manfred. Rob Manfred. Yeah, the commissioner's gonna be. I want to see him and Greg Abbott together. You know, yucking it up. That would be uh, great. I, I, you know, Rob will be here. And listen, I'm just gonna say this one more time. Um, Rob never really leaves you with a dynamic, like a feeling of dynamism. Is it dynamism? Charisma? Dynamism. Let's let's just say he doesn't leave you with a feeling of real charisma. But I applaud Rob Manfred for all the rule changes that baseball has put in because by and large, I think the game is going to be much more enjoyable for fans. Well, let me just say that one more time. So I'm watching the the game uh, on television Monday night, right? And so after nine innings, the game's over in two and a half hours. And, 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 you know, once again, for me, it's not so much the length of the games. It's just that the games are just more lively, you know? Yes, the pace pace is so much better. It's a crisp pace. It's just so great because, you know, when, when I think that it just, you know, it it didn't drive me crazy, but I'm trying to remember who was the the Rangers reliever and I cannot remember his name, but uh, I remember Eric Nadell complaining about him that, that the more tense the situation, the slower he got. He said he was already slow, and then if they got a runner or two on base, well, my gosh, it was extrapolated about ten times that. Uh, I, I, 
I think I, I think Joaquin Benoit was something. That's who it was, Joaquin Benoit. Of yes. a human rain delay. Um, God bless him. Uh, and and he was a he's a wonderful person. But yeah, he he was a slow worker. Yeah, I think it's like bad. in baseball, you know, the, the the thing about baseball is when the game is moving, there's this there is this little window where you are anticipating the next pitch and you're excited. And there's a thin line between where that anticipation then tips over into boredom and your attention starts to drift. And, and so I think by what they've done with the pitch clock is I think they've brought that all back to a point where you are just getting enough hint of anticipation about thinking what might take place on the next pitch before the action does take place. Well, it's just it's just better all the way around. Look, it's going to be better for defense. You'll, you'll have fielders more involved, more engaged. Uh, you know, I, I know that's a fact. You know, the, the more the longer time we go by, and when we talk about minds drifting, they're drifting out in the outfield. I can tell you that. Uh, and uh, and so that's 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 been a problem. And now baseball has rectified that. What I love about it is that it's a little bit like our our old boss uh, Dave Smith. You know, we were running this this big uh, sports section. You know, 120 people in it. It's a big franchise. It's a, as someone once explained, described it to me that when they would throw the paper, said it was like a it was like an old catalog landing on your front porch. It was so big, and yet you could walk into Dave Smith's office and say, "Dave, why are we doing this? Why don't we do that?" And he'd say, "Okay, let's do it." And that was the beauty of Dave Smith was that he was willing to rip things up and let's go and let's do something new. I love that kind of thinking. The, the, the idea that we got to sit on something and talk about it and deliberate on it year after year after year before we actually impose this kind of rule change or whatever we're going to do drives me crazy. You know, we're all getting older and we, and we need to move on and get along with the things we need to do. I'm not saying we don't need to, to have a, a good idea of the, of the impact it's going to have, but, but my gosh, nothing in life is slower than baseball to make real effective change. You know, something that's really going to make an impact on the sport because of all that. Oh, my gosh, we can't we can't, you know, change the game. Oh, my gosh. All these things are sacred. And listen, I love baseball. I've always loved it. Loved its history. I know its history. I know all of that. And I can tell you right now that except for the size of the bases, which I don't like that. And I still don't like the ghost runner. Uh, is that uh, everything else is just fine. And even those things are not huge. It's not like these are terrible changes that have been made to the sport. Uh, It's not like when they went from 154 games to 162. I mean, how crazy was that? You know, Uh, and they they did that and and everybody survived and they, and they lowered the, you know, the mound and everybody survived. So the game survives. Absolutely. All right. So let's go on. That's enough of that rant. Uh, okay, uh, so Evan, Jacob DeGrom will start. What are the chances that this is a, 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 a redo of Corey Kluber? <laughs> I hope it's not. Um, listen, he, his two starts in spring training were, were fantastic. Um, 97 to 100 miles an hour with the fastball. Uh I think this is this is just a different animal, Kevin. The the Rangers have not have not had this guy. You know, I just finished doing my little video that I do every week on the Rangers and I ran through it all, right? I mean, you know, when Nolan came here in eighty nine, 
he had a couple of good years and he and he and he finished off some great career accomplishments, but he was he was past his prime. I mean, the thing that was so amazing was that he 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 had those no hitters kind of after his prime. You know, you go through the '90s when they flirted with trying to bring Randy Johnson and Roger Clemens in here, and they failed. And you go through the 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 Chan Ho Park disaster, and the you know that they settled for Kevin Millwood, and these were not guys who were aces. Um, and even Darvish, there was a whole lot of hype about you, and you is a you was a a fine pitcher, but I think that he still had a lot to learn about Major League Baseball when he got here. Jacob DeGrom is a pitcher that even though he's had injuries over the last two years, his stuff is still in the prime of its of, of its of its career. And they have not had that kind of guy. This is the ace the Rangers have always craved. And it's I, I asked Jacob the other after his first start, because um, I'm working on this column basically on is this the best pitching staff in Rangers history? And I, I asked him, you know are you aware of the pitching history of this organization? And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, I'm aware Nolan Ryan pitched here, if that's what you're asking me. And I was like, well, yeah, but no, the idea is, do you know how sort, how sorry this pitching history has been? And, and he really does bring a new chapter to what this pitching staff can be. So it all comes down to this, Kevin, it all comes down to health. He's going to be on, kind of a restricted pitch limit the first couple starts. I think it'll be about 75 for the opener. I think it'll be 80 to 90 the second time out. I think, you know, he won't get to 100 before the end of April. Um, But all signs are that the guy is 100%. All right, now let's talk about something because – because of that rotation, not just Jacob DeGrom, of course, but Nathan Ivaldi and, and Martin Perez and John Gray and Andrew Heaney and, and then the guys that they've stacked up behind them that, uh, you know, Jake Odorizzi and, and uh, uh, Cole Reagans and Dane Dunning, you know, there's some real depth to this uh, rotation. And, and I saw something a couple of days ago on a national website talking about the uh, you know, how many pitchers you need to have and about how everybody's using you know, six, eight, 10, 11, 12 starters a year, you know, and, and some more than that. I think Tampa Bay used like 46 starters, you know, last year, something ridiculous. So um, we have talked about the fact, and I, uh, and I wrote a column, as a matter of fact, it's going to run tomorrow about, you know, the rotation. And so what it means for this team, will the Rangers jump up? Uh, here and uh, and 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 make a run at a playoff uh, shot and and you know I know you picked them with eighty six wins I picked them with eighty my eighty basically was based on the thinking that okay that's a uh, uh, that's an improvement not a not a big time improvement but really what I'm saying with eighty wins is that these starters won't all stay healthy all year long. Uh, but I want to look at it this way, Evan. Let's say that uh, these five starters make, you know, uh, 80% of what you would expect a star uh, to make, a number of starts, right? If they are all able to do that, and knowing what their track records are, because that's the thing about these guys, it's not just that you're, you're, you're betting on their track records, right, of what they do and what they're, what they're capable of. If they do that, 
then there's potential that this is the best rotation in baseball. And how do you beat that? I mean, doesn't that make the Rangers a uh, a, a contender even for to win the West? Listen, I I want to go back to just echo what you said, right? Because I, I spent a lot of time just talking about Degrom, but the fact that the four guys who back him up all have two hundred big league starts. Um, there's experience there, and there is a track record. Uvalde's won a World Series. Martin Perez was an all-star last year. Um, Andrew Heaney has chops. John Gray has chops. Uh, there is there is a one through five legitimate starting rotation. To your point, and this is the point that the pitchers have made, and this is what separates us, this starting rotation has the ability to impact every area of the ball club. I think you and I, we had, we did a, a kind of a point-counterpoint for, for the print product and digitally where we talked a little bit about the bullpen, right? Well, the bullpen is this team's perceived weakness. Um, it doesn't have a lot of proven track record there. But here's the thing. If you're getting five, six innings every night, sometimes seven from your starting rotation, all of a sudden you're able to pick and choose the relievers you want to use. And able to give guys rest on a more regular basis. And all of a sudden, the bullpen starts to reach maximum efficiency, right? It, 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 it's optimized. On top of that, if the bullpen's optimized, you know, there are going to be nights where a starter doesn't go long. And so you do have the ability now to pull on that bullpen, which will be fresh and ready. The other element of this is, we watched this team the last couple of years, Kevin. How often did it just appear that the offense went out at the start of the games thinking it had to pile up runs because nothing would be safe enough? I don't think that is going to be the case this year. I think this offense has gotten the message that it can just walk, move into games at its typical pace. It doesn't have to pressure itself to score runs in the first inning. It doesn't have to be super aggressive in the first inning, it can operate as it's designed. And so I think you'll see more efficiency and optimization from the offense. That is the impact of an effective starting rotation on the entire roster. And because of it, you know, look, I ended up picking the Rangers to win 18 more games than they did a year ago. I think you can make a case that there are reasons to believe they could win 20 more games than a year ago. I think it's entirely feasible that they win no more than 10 games more than a year ago. But they're going to win more games than they did a year ago. I think that that the ability to be playing meaningful games in September is real. Whether that means they end up with 80 wins or 88 wins, that's still to be determined. But I do think that they will go into September with the idea that their games still matter and I think it's entirely possible that they play the of the last 10 games that they play, seven are with Seattle, and they could go into that 10-game set or that 10-game stretch fighting with Seattle for one of the last wildcard spots. I think it's entirely realistic at this point. You know, here's the thing about baseball uh, that I, I don't think that people always grasp. It's, it's unlike other sports in that, you know, of course the Cowboys are trying to, you know, fill – you know, holes in their roster and find a wide receiver, a tight end, you know, a left guard, whatever. And those things are all important. There's no question about that. But in baseball, when you 
fill in holes. Uh, it's it's like we're talking about the the addition of, of of Robbie Grossman and about him lengthening the lineup, right? You when when you're taking outs out of the lineup, when you're when you're uh, filling in the rotation and you're pushing people back into positions that they're probably better served, you know, to, to fill in 162 games, those kind of things are magnified tremendously. You know, in a 16 game season, you can find things or 17 game season, you can find things to kind of patch up and get you through for this week or the next week. And then, you know, we'll move on to the next thing. But when you play 162 games, all these little holes, these, these little problems that you have, in your in your lineup, they're just magnified tremendously, and it frays and it causes things to happen, which I think has happened with the Rangers over the last few years. Is just <clears throat> frustration among the players, uh, you know, especially when you, you know, we, we I asked Woody that, you know, Chris Woodward, the first series, I said this, the problems in your bullpen, this is, you know, your your, your bullpen's already blown out, <laughs> you know, we haven't even got through the first week. And isn't this going to be a sign? And, of course, he gave the right answer, which was, hey, it's the first week. Don't worry so much. It's like, yeah, but we know what's going to happen here. You're going to wear this bullpen out by June, maybe even by May, and then it'll just be – it's like driving with bad tires. You know, you're, you're just going to eventually blow all your tires, and it's just going to be a disaster. And it's exactly what happened, right? The bullpen, the bullpen caught its breath last year, um, really functioned well in May as the Rangers scrambled back to 500. And then in June, when they had a chance to make up some make up some real ground and push above 500, everything imploded, and the rest of the season went downhill after that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was just set up to happen that way. That's how it happened. Um, and hopefully, the Rangers will be in a little bit better position this year to take to, to, to handle that. <clears throat> yes, I think they will. Uh, so, so let's let's look at uh, uh, around the the. Let's just take the, <clears throat> a little uh, a tour around the team, around the lineup, and, and figure out where we think and what's a reasonable ex- expectation of everybody. So do we think that Nate Lowe can duplicate what he did last year? 850 is a, is, is, is a really elite OPS in the game these days. If, they, if, if, Nate, if Nate goes above 800 again, and I think that's, that's completely um, possible, um, he's had another really solid year. I'd li- if, if he goes 800, 820, and he can be a little bit more um, reliable around the bag at first base, I think he can have just as much impact as he did with the bat last year. Yeah, I, I think that's that, that's a key for me too. You know, it was interesting what I saw Bruce Bochy say the other day about Josh Young was that, okay, look, you, you know, we wanted to hit. I think he's going to hit. But what I've really told him is I want him to play good defense, you know, that's what I wanted to do, and that's what he talked about all spring. These are the things, and I'm not saying that, that Chris Woodward wouldn't have said the same thing, but these are the kind of things a smart manager does, right? He, he picks out uh, uh, something for a guy and says, listen, especially a young guy you know, who's, who may be trying to live up to a reputation and a pedigree and all the rest of it, and say, hey, don't worry about the offense. It's going to be good. Ball's jumping off your bat. Just just play your position. Play it. I want you to – I want you to concentrate on playing it really well because the guy to your left, he's going to hit, you know, 40 home runs. And, and the guy to his left might hit 40 home runs. Uh, and, and so everything's going to be okay. You just play your position. And that takes all the pressure off of him. I do think that Josh Jones is going to have a, a good year. Uh, I, I did uh, say on our uh, little Slack 
uh, fast the other day that I thought within a couple of years, he'll be an all-star. Uh, that puts a lot of pressure on him, but I think that's the kind of guy, that's the kind of talent that he is. Uh, and he's a smart kid. As I pointed out then, the Rangers haven't had a lot of smart hitters. They've had a lot of guys, big swing and miss. Uh, and that was, that had really grown old on everybody. The, the two things, pitchers not throwing strikes, hitters swing and miss. Uh, and those were two earmarks of this club. Things that you could just say, yeah, this pretty much defines them. Yeah. And I think those things have been answered uh, because even even when uh, when Evaldi pitched the other night and he didn't have a great game, he gave up back-to-back home runs, my gosh, over the span of three pitches. But one of the things I loved about watching that was he, he got in a little bit of trouble uh, early and then he just punches somebody out. Uh, and when you can do that, when, when you have the ability to strike people out, which all of these guys do uh, in the rotation – well, that makes a, a big difference. You know, you get in a little bit of trouble. Ah, I'll get out of it here. Don't worry. Everything's good. This is a, this rotation, the, the strikeout to walk ratio of this rotation, again, is has the ability to be stellar. And when you do that, you don't beat yourself and you have the ability to extricate yourself from tough situations of your own volition, right? I mean, you can do it on your own. You don't have to rely on anybody else. So, yeah, it is different. The weapons are different. The abilities are different. I also thought it was I thought it was obvious, but I thought it was important for Bruce Bochy to say that about Josh Young, that, hey, here's what you can control. You know, you can't control if the ball is going to fall in or not. And you are going to have ups and downs at the plate. But if you give us consistent defense night in and night out, there's enough weapons in this lineup that we'll be just fine. Um, I and think- that's the same thing for, for center field, I want to say that. You know, I, I've, I've been all over Leone Tavares, and I think rightfully so. But, you know, once he comes back, and it looks like that uh, Adolis Garcia will, will start in center field, at least for a week, you know, I don't want to, you know, be ugly or anything, but this is what I said – What probably should happen all along was that, you know, that Odellis would play center field until Leody could come back. Anyway, the, the manager kept saying, every time I asked the manager that in spring training, he would just say, we didn't even talk about Adoli. He kept calling him Adoli instead of Adoli. I, I, I think, Kevin, I think in, you know, what they would prefer, what they would have preferred to do was just slide Bubba Thompson into center field and leave everybody else alone. Okay. The problem is that Bubba just did not have a very good spring at the plate and his value to this team is going to be as, at least early in the season, is going to be, okay, you can run the bases. We know you can run the bases. Let us select an opportunity when we can make sure you're on base and then ask you to go grab a base when we need to. So as a pinch runner, he wanted Bubba, Bochi wanted Bubba to run in the ninth inning against Kansas City the other night. He was saving him for that specific situation. Um, and got a perfect situation, right? It was 4-4, had a chance to, to, to create the winning run. And, of course, you had three guys, known slackers, Simeon Seeger and Lowe, none of whom reached base. So he couldn't, he couldn't run um, uh, Bubba in that situation. But so I think what, he's, what, what Bochy is thinking right now is clearly Duran and Smith are better offensive options. I can start the game with one of those guys in left field. Robbie Grossman can play an adequate, if not above average, right field. 
and Adolis can certainly play center. And then if you get in a situation late, you can move Bubba to center, Adolis back to right, and and, and Ricks to uh, Ricks, Robbie to to left, and have your best defensive outfield alignment with a lead. So. Well, see, I think that's look the thing you you kind of glossed over there. I did gloss over, but you mentioned it really quickly. Is Ezekiel Duran the fact that he had such a great spring is why uh, Adolis is now playing center, and they moved Robbie Grossman to right. Both of those guys, both Josh Smith and Ezekiel Duran, had fantastic springs, and yeah. they earned their way onto the roster as super utility guys. And it's incumbent upon the team with super utility guys to get them into the lineup, and yeah. so. This is the way that you can get them in the lineup early and see if they can really grab some momentum early. You know, I'm, I'm interested in, in Ezekiel Duran here because, uh, you know, the, the thinking has been just like Justin Foscue, oh, he's just going to be end up being trade material now because of the, the glut here in middle infield, right? And these guys are going to be here until the next century. And so uh, they'll just be ended up being traded. I don't have a problem with trading Justin Foscue, I don't think, at this point, although, my gosh, he really – ripped the ball in the, in the limited at bats he had his spring as well. Yeah. He can really hit, you know, that that's just something that kind of goes over with me. I, I, you know, if a guy can't play a position really well, but if he can still really hack, well then let's, let's talk about this, you know, uh, it, but offense the, plays, Kevin. I mean, we just talked about it with Nate Lowe, right? I mean, he was an yeah. 850 OPS guy last year. Wasn't good around the back. He was an above average baseball player because offense plays in this game. Absolutely. That's the thing about Duran. I want to see, you know, can he play left field? I mean, let, let's find out if he can play it because, look, I, I got my problems with Josh Smith a, l- a little bit out there. I, I, I know he can play. I, I just don't know if he's got enough arm for it. I really don't know if, if Duran has enough arm for it. He's fast, uh, and, and I think that's, that's something. But he's got real pop. You, you want to have a – your corner outfielders, those guys got to have some pop. Uh, and and that's I think that's something that really needs to be thought about. Look, I think for both those guys with their level of experience, I think the idea of however early on you do it, a platoon out there where you can exploit Zeke versus left-handed pitching and you can use Josh versus right-handed pitching, I think plays to both of their strengths. My concern on Josh is I think he's, you know, he's such a little guy. I do think he may be a little bit injury prone and he does play. I don't want to say recklessly, but he does play very aggressively. And I think at shortstop, it's one thing, but I think in the outfield where the ball has a chance to get by you and go all the way to the wall, that's one thing he may have to get a better feel for there. Um, I feel like I've seen a couple dives that I don't know if I was comfortable with or not, but listen, this is, this is why they are here. They have the ability to help this team win. The Rangers are finding a spot where they can potentially help this team win and at a point in time when they need it. And it's up to them if they seize the opportunity. To this point, through spring training, they've done nothing but that. They've seized every opportunity given to them. Well, the other thing about Josh Smith, too, you can't lose him, is he's the only he's the only backup shortstop. Uh, they really don't have anybody close <clears throat> to playing that position when Corey Seager's not in the game. No, they, I mean, and they, they've used Duran a little bit at shortstop in spring training, but the bottom line is if you if you have an injury with with Corey Seager um, and Josh Smith is not available, then you're either going to ask Marcus Simeon to move back over to shortstop or you're going to have to call up Jonathan Ornelas, who's the only middle infielder really above Class A, who's got above Class A experience, um, 
and have him play shortstop. And I don't think there's anybody. I think there's a lot of people in the organization who believe Jonathan is going to hit in the big leagues, and they really believe he's regained um, some some uh, momentum. But I don't think anybody thinks that he's ready to hit in the big leagues right now. No, don't think so. All right, that's going to do it for our Rangers segment of the podcast today. Looking forward to the opening day on Thursday. And we'll, Evan and I will both be out there and a few other people as well. Uh, so now we're going to move over to uh, college basketball, men's and women's Final Fours. Uh, we've got the women's Final Four here in Dallas this week. Uh, that'll be a lot of fun uh, to have them here. Uh, it is a, a, a new time in, well, this in this Final Four men's and women's side, uh, really uh, different fields than what we normally see. Uh, and uh, one of our colleagues has written about that uh, for the, on the women's side. And her contention is that, uh, Leah's contention is that you, uh, you may be affected by NIL and uh, women are more likely to hang around here instead of going off to Europe or thinking about the WNBA, uh, helping them out a little bit in that decision. Uh, you also have the, the transfer portal and the ability to just kind of take a team and restock it uh, a lot quicker than you could through recruiting, which is what LSU did with uh, taking a, a transfer from Maryland, who's now the, uh, the fifth leading scorer in the country. Um, I think you're seeing a little bit of that, though, also on the men's side, Evan. And, uh, and we, we see the, uh, uh, the teams that have come here. Let's talk about the men first, and we're going to talk about the women. We're going to have a little uh, standoff here on, on the women's discussion. Uh, on, the, on the men's teams, of course, you know, we have, for the first time since, I believe, 1972, we don't have a number one, a number two, or a number three seed in the Final Four. Uh, that is pretty remarkable uh, to see this group. That, it, that is assembled here <clears throat> that we're going to see uh, on the men's side. Uh, and the thing about it to me, Evan, is that, uh, you know, we don't want to overreact to any of these kind of situations, but it certainly seems like over the last, I would say, oh, 10 years that we're starting to see uh, uh, more older teams making the final four, making it a run through the tournament uh, I, I go back to when Butler did in Houston the last time. Uh, and then uh, you're also seeing uh, teams that play a really tough brand of basketball. They're really hard-nosed defense. Uh, and I think that if you just look at those two things, uh, obviously that says that if you've got a lot of one-and-done players like Kentucky has historically had, like Duke has historically had, like North Carolina has historically had, then it's more difficult to to get it. Not, obviously, you're going to get into the tournament, to, but to make that run to the tournament. Uh, and I think that's something that's going to continue. I, I just saw too much of that this year on the men's side. Uh, you know, I thought that Houston had a real shot to make it because I thought they were pretty tough. But they weren't as tough as Miami. Uh, and now Miami is, is in the tournament. Uh, you look at all four of those teams. Those are teams that are very gritty. I have to say sometimes it's kind of ugly uh, to watch some of those games. Uh, they're, they were fun at the end, but, boy, there were times it's like, can somebody make a shot here? Uh, and and I think we're we're seeing just a little bit more of, of what happens when you get that kind of play uh, in, in the games. I, I, I agree. I mean, I last year, right – Texas Tech was a win from the Final Four. Yeah. With a team that was built solely around defense. Um, 
and through the transfer portal with older players. Um, I think that it, it's easier to get older players to buy into defense. I think it's uh, – and I think when you've got an older team, they're a little bit more experienced. Even if they haven't played together, they're more experienced and they know the, the, the pitfalls. And, and so I think that that is – you know, that, that may play better than just raw talent at this point. Yeah, um, I think that, you know, the thing about those – the portal guys too, the transfers, men or, men or women's side – I think sometimes when you get those kind of players, uh, I mean, how many times do you see them transfer and then it doesn't work out? It's like, oh, oh, they're not any good. It always seems like they work out. They almost always seem to be players who make a real impact. I I can remember back in the day, you know, you didn't want to take JUCO players. Nobody really wanted it. It was a real people really looked down their noses at them. It's like, oh, you know, those guys are. There, there's a problem of some kind. They're not very smart, or they're problem players. There's a reason why they were in JUCO, and and then you don't, you don't have them very long, and and it's it's difficult to assimilate them with the general population, and all of that, all of those things you would hear. Well, it's the same thing now. I mean, essentially, you're you're getting guys or uh, on men's or women's side that are only going to play there for one or two years, but they're all making an immediate impact. Uh, and, and I think that probably a lot of that is, is that they're determined to make that kind of impact. You know, they know that, that they're in here for a short amount of time and they're going to make the best of it. And so I, I think what you're really seeing is that it's a lot easier to upgrade your team than it used to be. Uh, and I, 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 I just think it's going to be interesting to see, because this is what I, I said about Texas when Chris Beard was hired. Uh, and of course that didn't last very long. Uh, but the kind of teams he put together at Texas Tech were, were those kind of teams, really hard-nosed guys, uh, not a lot of uh, uh, blue-chip players, blue-collar players is what he was getting. And would Texas really want to recruit those kind of players? Wouldn't they really rather think, we're like Kentucky, we're like you know Duke, we're like North Carolina, we're going to recruit blue-chip talent here? Uh, and I, don't, you know, I wasn't sure how that was going to work out. I think at this point, what the final four is showing you is that you just need to make sure you're getting good teams. You know, don't worry so much about some of these one and done kids. Uh, you need to make sure that you're getting the kind of players that are going to be able to, that when you ask them to play defense, they're going to do that. Uh, so, so cut to the chase, Kevin, who's winning it all. You know, I, I, I'm going with UConn uh, just because that Ken Palm had them ranked number one. And, and that's – I think you do need to have I, – I think they have a little more firepower than some of the rest of the teams in the tournament. So I, I, I'm going to go with UConn. But, I, my gosh, what a tournament this year. I mean, you, you know, uh, my, uh, I lost – Purdue was one, was one of my final four picks. I lost them the first weekend. So, you know, it was uh, – uh, it was – uh, that, and that's why I thought, frankly, when Gonzaga lost and didn't just get lost, but just got blown out of the tub, uh, I thought that really, cause, you know, with Drew Timmy from Richardson, you know, I thought that this, look, he's, I think he's been playing there for like six years. Uh, and I really thought that kind of experience was going to matter. But, but, you know, they, they just ran into a buzzsaw. And I think that's, that's what's happening now in the tournament. I think that, that coaches are able to look at these things now and show their teams, look, you play this way. We can win. You know, we don't have to be great. It's a little bit like what Arkansas was like back in the early 90s, you know, in the 40 minutes of hell. That's that's what it was all about. I think they were a little ahead of their time. You know, if you can play that kind of defense and keep it up, 
it is you're going to really make it unpleasant for for uh, the, the, whoever you're playing against. There was a great uh, line in one of the basketball games in the studio, and uh, and they and they said uh, Clark Kellogg had said no one likes to play uh, offense like this, and he showed him putting a hand right in front of his face, you know, and it's like yeah, it is it is aggravating if you know this this other guy is in front of you is not going to let up that they're just going to constantly be in your face. You know, I just, you just saw it time and time again during the tournament. So let's move over to the women's side now, Evan. Uh, you have your favorite coach who has come to the Final Four, and I have my favorite coach that's come to the Final Four. So I'm going to let you make your, your case first for the South Carolina coach. Yeah, I just think, I, I mean, I you know, I've seen some stories that maybe Dawn Staley should be considered for the Temple men's job. She's a Temple grad. She, well, she's from Philadelphia. She didn't go to Temple. She went to Virginia. Um I do think that at this point in time, Dawn Staley is one of the five best coaches, men or women, in the country. I think she's done a remarkable job at South Carolina going into a conference where South Carolina was not a powerhouse and where powerhouses resided from top to bottom throughout the SEC and basically made it her own her own dominion. And, and I think she's just done it with um, – she's just done it with a certain – a certain style, a um, there's not a calling of attention to herself. There's a calling of attention to the South Carolina basketball program. And I respect that a lot. I think that it is about the program much more than it is about Don Staley. Yeah, there's no question about that. And, and you know, when and you said she doesn't draw attention to herself, but when she has to say something, she says it. Yep. You know, and that's the thing about Don. Everything, you know, what she says is smart. Uh you know, I don't. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but uh, I was reading uh, something uh, in Leah's story today, talking about how when when women say something, they uh, women coaches say something. Uh, they're say, you know, people tell them, "Oh, you can't say that. You can't be so bold." And then when the Fairleigh Dickinson coach says, "Hey, we're going to win this week," you know, it's like everybody applauds him. So that's great. You know, there's something that matter in this country that we we still put women and men in different categories here and say men can say certain things but women can't say that that is such bull that is such bull and i and i just wish we would all grow up and move on and figure out that especially in athletics it's all good it's all even you know uh we, we've worked hard through title nine to try to get women the same rights and the same ability to do everything that the men do and and let's not put any other uh, restrictors, restrictives on them of any sort. So ridiculous. But yeah, that, so I'm I mean, gonna... that said, Kevin, right? You know, I, I'm not a fan of the attention-seeking coach, whether it's a man or a woman, that tends to put themselves above their programs. Um, so is this going to be a shot at my coach? The one I'm going to talk about? No, but I think I think I, I think Kim Mulkey has done much more of that presenting herself as, as a icon um, and as a personality than say Staley has. And so you're, 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 you're referencing her, her sequin jackets. Well, I do know that there's an Instagram account that seems to be a, a <laughs> nothing more than what Kim wore to the basketball game that night. But, you know, we don't do that for, we don't, we, I, I don't know. I, I, I just think that, some of the stuff that she said at Baylor um, and, and on her way out and some of the stuff she said in regards to the Brittany Griner case, some of that stuff kind of rubbed me the wrong way. 
Look, uh, Kim's different, and there's no question about that. And and she does have an ego, and and she, uh, you know, we used to call this little man's disease. Uh, I don't know if we can still say that anymore. Uh, but when someone was someone was short, and and as someone who, when I was a freshman in high school, I was five two and weighed ninety two pounds. Uh, that made me pretty pretty short, uh, and and. And grew nine inches in high school, but that that was beside the point. Uh, but the 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 idea of, of that, you know, was always trying to to act a little bigger than what you really need to. And and certainly Kim did that. She came up the hard way in in, in college athletics and, and and in life in general. So I I applaud Kim. Look, yes, there are things about Kim's personality that do rub me the wrong way as well. But I know this. I wrote this column a couple of years ago. She, when she was at Baylor, she was the best coach, man or woman, any sport in Texas. Uh, no question in my mind. She won three national championships at Baylor. And look, she goes to LSU, and in her second year, she's got them in the Final Four. Uh, and, and, and LSU hadn't won uh, a tournament game, an NCAA tournament game, since 2014. So – she, this is just what she does. You know, she's a great coach uh, and she and she gets her teams to win. Uh, and and so I'm glad that Kim is back. Uh, you know, she's she's a character. Uh, and I guess, you know, I give a little bit of, of uh, a leash to people. If you're really good at what you do and you're a character as well. Oh, well, what the heck? I'm going to I'm going to let you ride with that a little bit. I'm, I'm going to give you a little more license than somebody who, who's, who's neither one of those things. Yeah. I, you know, and I, listen, I applaud Kim for what she's done. Um, she has, she built two programs now at, at Baylor and, and at, at LSU. She's done a fantastic job. Um, I, I was never a fan of the Bobby Knights of the world and of, the John Calipari's and the Rick Pitino's, all of whom I thought seemed to make it more about the coach than the program. And there are occasions where I feel that that's how Kim has approached things. But you cannot argue with her success. You cannot argue with the way her teams play. Um, she's done a tremendous job, and I, I applaud her for that. I think it sometimes it just comes down to what are the personalities that you're that you're more drawn to and I, there are occasions when I just feel like she falls into that same thing that we've seen with so many football coaches and so many basketball coaches where it becomes more about Kim Mulkey than it does about LSU or about Baylor. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, but it also goes back to what we discussed earlier, which was that women can't say that. Well, ultimately, you know, it comes it, down to brand names, right? I mean, you're tr- what she's trying to do is build a brand name for LSU basketball. And yeah, if it's and through- she's doing that, and that's then that's the thing. I, I you know, so that I. You, you know, the things that you normally, uh, for me, and I, cause I, I gotta tell you, I've just always tried to, it's just like when people would say women aren't good at math, you know, or, or whatever it was. And I can remember when I was in school, some of the girls in the class were the best in the, you know, in my class at math. And so I just never even grew up with that idea that women couldn't do these things. It just never even occurred to me. And so it's just so when we look at some of these things and, and, you know, I think, women have it so much harder than men do just in life in general. And so if she feels like she has to act this way to get what she wants and God bless her, then 
I'm all for it. So and, I'm, I'm trying to look at these things a little differently and put them in a little different category. And listen, this has nothing to do with, with man or woman. It just comes down to personality for me. And let me just say this, right? Kim learned, Kim learned at the, at the hands of Leon Barmore. And right. this is a guy who carved out a reputation as the best women's basketball coach at a pro, you know, at a school, a small school, um, that didn't have any affiliation, and he did what he needed to do to draw attention to the lady textures at Louisiana Tech. Yes, um, and so she's done the same thing. She's followed that path, uh, and she stayed true to that. And what she has done is built herself um, a reputation as one of the best coaches in the country. No question. All right, so who we pick in there? I got to tell you, after saying all that about Kim – I got to go with Iowa. I'm going with Caitlin Clark. I picked her as the MVP of the tournament going into this. Uh, she has played like the MVP of the tournament so far. She has carried Iowa. I don't know if she can carry them all the way to the finish, but I'm going to stick with her. I'm going with Iowa winning the women's. Well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to divert from my Dawn Staley love, and I'll t- I'll stick with South Carolina. All right, we'll see how that works out. All right, now let's move over. We're going to have our old. Popery segment. You know, oh, our, our faithful listener, listener Mark Kozlowski, uh, who uh, who works with us, by the way, at the Dallas Morning, is one of our fine uh, uh, copy desk editors, uh, one of my favorites, also our our, our golf editor. Uh, he loves potpourri, uh, and, and so do I, obviously. So we're going to cover a little bit of ground here. We're going to talk about uh, uh, what's going on with the Mavericks and what's going on with the Cowboys. Let's start with the Mavericks. Uh, so what we found out... Today is it looks like that Dirk Nowitzki is going to be in the the newest class of the Naismith Hall of Fame. Uh, no surprise there, right? I mean, I mean, how could you not? How could you no not? Surprise, no surprise. Dirk my Nowitzki. my bigger surprise is how anybody leaked this to um, Adrian Warnowski last night that who was going to be in the Hall of Fame class. Oh, you're surprised that Adrian's getting those kind of uh, uh, sources. Uh, I, I, you know, I would think. it's one thing on trades, but I kind of thought the hall of fame voting process and all that was a little bit more secretive, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You know, unfortunately we know how that works with agents and, uh, and people and, and certainly people just leaking stuff to ESPN because it's, but look, let's, uh, let's not take away from, from the moment, right? Dirk, Dirk is the epitome. I, I I go back to the Baseball Hall of Fame, and the thing I always tell people is, if you walk into the gallery of plaques, the entrance to the gallery of plaques, there is a sculpture there of Roberto Clemente, Luke Gehrig, and Jackie Robinson. Three of the, to me, the epitome of what defined Hall of Famers. People who operated at a certain level of, uh, I want to say moral character and a, a obviously an exemplary level of baseball acumen. Um, and I think the same kind of applies for, for Dirk Nowitzki. He, he's been, he's been that kind of person um, and player. Uh, and a, a, there's, there's not a hall of fame that Dirk Nowitzki shouldn't be in. No, there isn't a uh, hall of fame person for one thing. That's, uh, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's the difference. And, and, you know, uh, we all knew that we would miss uh, Dirk uh, when he retired uh, after 21 years with the Mavericks, uh, and and I got to tell you, we miss him more than ever now uh, these days uh, because you you see what's going on with the Mavericks and you watch them just uh, uh, you know 
fritter away this season. And, and he, if ever there was a time for the Mavericks to have a shot at winning the West, it was this year. I mean, you look at it, and even now, with, with, of course, there's only, what, five games left, six games left in the season? Six, six games left in the season. So a three-game difference is, is too much to make up in six games. But it's just they're three games out of, like, the fourth or fifth seed. You know, so uh, it was that close. And if they just played at any kind of level that they could approximate, and, of course, they had the ability to be that good, they could have been a fourth or fifth seed. But look where they are now. They may not even make the playoffs. You know, they're 11th right now as we're as we're recording this on Tuesday. So it's ridiculous what's happened with, with the Mavericks this year. Uh, I, I can't even begin to say where it has all gone wrong. You know, I wrote a comment recently of talking about the fact that what happened to that little team that could last year, right? It went into the playoffs and, and Luca wasn't even available. And and yet, you know, Jalen Brunson steps up and they played great and they, they played great defense. They made their threes. Uh, they imposed their will on those teams. They, they drove Donovan Mitchell right out of Utah. You know, they, they won the final games on somebody else's court twice, you know, during that playoff run last year. It was just amazing to watch them do that. It got to the point where you knew they were going to win because – just what I was talking about with the with the men's final four. Those teams that were playing such great defense, they just they just took all the will out of those of their opponents. And that's what the Mavericks did last year. And then this year it's like, nah, we're not doing that. We're not playing that kind of defense. We're not making that kind of commitment. Uh and then also, you know, you know, they can score. They can do that for sure, but they can't shoot their threes like they they like they want to. And so they kind of bounce all over the place. If they're making their threes, they're pretty good. If they're not, they're not. Um, I will say that Jaden Hardy has been a revelation for the Mavericks, a second-round draft pick. How many times can you say that about the Mavericks, although Jalen Brunson was a second-round draft pick as well? So so maybe they're better in the second round than they are in the first. Uh, so I, I do think that there are there is still a possibility they can put something together. I don't think they will. Uh, I, I think that they're if they make the playoffs, they're they're in and out, and that's going to be it. Yeah, I, listen, I I just think that I think this season is is over with for the Mavericks. I mean, I, I, I it, it is kind of difficult to sit here and look at the West and see that there's eight teams be, with between five games above five hundred and five games below five hundred. Uh, it's more jumbled than it's ever been, but there's no indication that the Mavericks have played with any sense of rhythm. Um, you don't get the sense that this team is moving in the right direction in any way. You look at look, you look at the Thunder, the Lakers, the Pelicans, the Warriors. All those teams are are, are you know a little bit at least warm as we're as we're closing in on the end of the season. The Mavericks are as cold as anybody in the West right now. Um, yeah, there's no question about that. Last year, after the trade, after the Dinwiddie trade, um, the Porzingis trade, uh, they were terrific. You know, they were on a great run going into the postseason. You don't just suddenly catch fire. You don't just suddenly say, "Hey, here we go. We're all going to play, and now it's going to be. We're going to play great defense, and we're going to have our rotation set up, and here we go." So, I, you know, I, I don't. We're going to talk about the Cowboys a little bit too. The time we have left, but. You know, 
what we had to figure out is two things. Where this all went wrong, was it the fact that Christian Wood couldn't play defense and that really screwed them up? Because they got smaller, obviously, when they and they when they made the, they traded Dorian Finney-Smith. They got smaller. They were already a small team. Uh, and so and JaVale McGee couldn't stay on the floor. They couldn't keep him on the floor for whatever reason. Uh, so they had no interior defense. Uh, so that's a problem. Uh, the, secondly, we, we talk a lot about, you know, was Kyrie Irving, are they going to re-sign him or not? I got to believe that Kyrie Irving wouldn't want to come back. Why would he want to come back here? I don't think he wanted to come back here in the first place. I think he wants to either play with LeBron James or he wants to play with Kevin Durant. So either with the Lakers or the Suns, uh, I don't know why he would want to come back to this team and struggle through more of this. So that's a legitimate question. But the third question is, is what was it Luca was talking about when he said he was unhappy? Yeah. It was that, on the I floor mean, that, and off the floor. All that's, of that that was, becomes number one. All of that was really disturbing. I, I mean, I, Obviously, Luca doesn't he he doesn't talk about his personal life, but he says there's a lot going on, which makes you wonder. Okay, so what exactly is going on? And the second part of it is, is is I feel like the Mavericks have never settled on how do you win with Luca. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the issue is. Obviously, they don't know what the issue is in how they construct a team to consistently win. With, with Luka Doncic, but that's something that they really need to attack this summer and figure out a better approach. I just, I, it, it can't continually be the same kind of turnover that they have year after year, can it? Well, I, I got to tell you, I think you're going to have to turn it over this year because if, if Kyrie doesn't come back, that leaves a big hole in your salary cap, right? So you're going to be able to fill that with something. And I think that's probably the best case scenario, even though you lost those players uh, and you would think you'd like to keep the guy. I don't know that you want to – listen, I don't have any problem with what Kyrie has done since he's been here. You know, he's, he's been what they thought he would be. You know, he hasn't been a problem. He's, he's not the reason why they're, they're losing. They were losing before he got here. It just hasn't made a difference with him. So the, the problem is that they, they're, they're terrible – defenders now and they're and they were always a bad rebounding team even last year so they're gonna have to figure out a way to get a lot tougher inside and and that's going to require a complete remake of that you know the, the whole christian wood thing as well it, you know that was just a bust they they did a they did a great job last year on the Przingis trade this year a complete flip-flop a bust adding christian wood a bust uh trading for Kyrie irving a bust you know this has been a disaster this year, and then it doesn't help any when Jason Kidd is is acting like, yeah, well, you know, I'm not playing. You know, th- these things are uh, are are not good. They do not bode well for the future. The Mavericks have got a major rebuilding program that they go through this summer, and th- and the problem with that is is that if Luka Doncic already was unhappy, my gosh, is he going to want to sit through a rebuild? No, he is not. There is, to me, it looms with the possibility, the possibility looms that he's going to demand a trade at some point, and that's going to be the Mavericks fans' worst nightmare. All right, let's move over to, and talk about the Cowboys now in the time we have left. Uh, David Moore was out at the owners' meetings in which uh, a really interesting development was the fact that uh, Jerry Jones revealed that, okay, Tyron Smith's not going to be the swing tackle, which is what we all thought was going to happen next year when they restructured his contract, he's going to start at right tackle. Uh, and Terrence Steele, who really played 
some great football last year. He was one of the best run blockers at right tackle in football last year before he got hurt. And then, of course, we saw why that was, because uh, after he got hurt, the Cowboys running game went in the tank. Um, he'll be the swing tackle. Uh, he, and, of course, he's coming off an ACL. And so my initial thought was, well, maybe they just feel like he won't be ready, and that's why they want to start Tyron Smith over at right tackle instead. And what we found out was that, no, they're, they're trying to make this a better pass-protecting line to make things better for Dak. And so Tyron Smith is a better pass protector than Terrence Steele, and they would be either move Terrence Steele to swing tackle or the possibility that he could be the left guard, which, of course, there is a hole there now. Um, I'm intrigued by the idea of Terrence Steele playing left guard. Uh, I, I like the idea uh, at guard of having a really good uh, run blocker there. Uh, I think that could make a real difference. So let's uh, – the, the problem with that is that, A, he's coming off the ACL, so how much will that affect him in his return? B, uh, Tyron Smith misses a lot of games. I don't know if you've noticed that, but he misses a lot of games. And so I would hate to have to keep bouncing Terrence Steele back and forth. Either he's going to end up replacing Tyron when he gets hurt, which he always does, or, you know, is he going to play guard instead? It'd be easier for him if he was just the swing tackle. So I think this all this all has implications here of what they do in the draft with the 26th pick. Uh, there was some thought that if Osiris Torrance, who might be the best guard in the draft, was available, that that's a, a no-brainer for the Cowboys. They just plug him in at left guard, and then they could – that solves their problems. Uh, I think that's still a possibility. I think that seems like, to me, the most realistic one, if that's what, when it comes to. But I'm also intrigued by the fact that they're talking about pass protecting for Dak so much. And I, I can't say that I thought that was an issue for them uh, this last year. I didn't feel like that Dak was running for his life that much. Uh, and, and frankly, speaking of running, I think we're better off if Dak is running a little more, aren't we? I've always been I've always been a fan of of Dak getting out and moving a little bit more and and not being so committed to being a stationary kind of drop back, throw the ball deep passer. Um, I think if you move and you run a little bit more, then you create a little bit more unpredictability in terms of what your offense is going to look like. So. I just like to see them plan to get him out of the pocket a little bit more. Well, no question about that. And that was one of the things I'd, I'd seen somewhere was that people were saying, well, maybe without Zeke Elliott, uh, you know, at, at the goal line, instead of just turning around and sticking it in his stomach and, and trying to get him to score, that maybe that that would uh, open up something for Dak in bootlegs and that kind of thing. If my boys, they know when they watch football games with me, I'm, I'm yelling bootleg at the, at the screen like, you know, five times a game. Uh, and, and when he, when they do it, it always works. It's like, why don't you do this more often? We, we are seeing that more obviously in, in pro football, uh, is, uh, you know, the, the, the day when you just had a drop back passer, a pocket passer, you know, the days of Peyton Manning, you know, and Tom Brady, I think those days are over. You know, it's so hard to find those kind of quarterbacks. They gotta uh, be mobile, Kevin. They, they, they have to add that element, you know, the, the RPO has to be at least a, a legitimate element of your of your offensive scheme because it's just it's it's you know you've got your run game and you've got your pass game and the RPO is kind of a blend of the two and I think it's really a third category all to itself. 
Well, I mean, just look what Jalen Hurts was able to do last year. You know, you, you look at a guy like Josh Fields in Chicago. Now, the jury's still out on him as a quarterback. But when the Bears finally decided, all right, let's just let him run, all but of a sudden, he's he's unstoppable. The jury's you know? still out on him as a quarterback. It's not out on him as an offensive weapon. He is an offensive weapon. Whether he's a guy who can win you a game in a two-minute offense, not certain. But he can certainly – pile up yards and do some damage well it, it, there's no question about that and that was the thing you know I, I go back to the days when i covered college football and, and covering uh university of houston and, and the beer offense it's that you know bill yeoman created that offense uh and what the whole success of it was is that you just don't know what they're going to do on any given play you you know he's either going to keep it he's going to option you know uh he's going to hand off option you know the pitch or he's gonna are you gonna run or pass and and that kind of thing on every play enabled him to pile up a lot of wins with players who really weren't very good uh and i think that's that's the thing that you have to look at is as defenses become more and more difficult and is it is harder and harder for offenses to to uh to score look what's happened to dak in the yeah. last two years, I don't know if, if that that whole thing with Vic Fangio and deep in Denver when they won and and Vic, who's not a shy guy, said we have we have given a blueprint here, and we all said, "Oh yeah, sure, Vic, blueprint." Well, I don't know, maybe it was because Dak hasn't been the same since then, uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons why you know Mike McCarthy will be calling the plays now instead of Kellen Moore. He's supposedly going to introduce more of that West Coast offense. Try to take some of the pre-snap uh, things that that he would that Dak was having to do before, and kind of relaxing those a little bit. One of the things that Mike McCarthy said at the owners' meetings this week was that when you simplify things, players play faster, and and when they play faster, then they play better, and you have a better chance to win. I think those are all uh, things that the Cowboys are are putting in place now. We'll see how they work out. Uh, they certainly made some great moves. Uh, they, ha- I had to kind of back up a little bit when I said that that uh, how did, you know that Howie Roseman, the, the Philadelphia Eagles GM, is playing three level chess and Jerry Jones is playing checkers. I still think that Howie Roseman is a better GM than Jerry Jones, and that's not that's a pretty low bar. Uh, but the Cowboys made some really good moves. Uh, they they didn't just go out and get a couple of low level guys, which they have been very good at. They went out and made a, a big move to get uh, uh, Stephon Gilmore, and then they also got uh, uh, some other guy. They got another some other guy. guy. <laughs> some other guy. You mean you mean Brandon Cooks, Kevin? Yes, that's what I meant, Brandon Cooks. I was that was your speech. old man moment of the show, as opposed to all the other old man moments. Uh, so anyway, yeah, so they, they made some big moves and put themselves in a great situation here where now in the draft, they can take whoever they want. You know, I, I have written that, you know, I don't think he's going to drop to 26, but if B. John Robinson would be there, that'd be a very interesting pick at 26. I'm not normally in favor of taking a running back in the first round. That was a big mistake when the Cowboys did that with, his, uh, with Zeke Elliott, with the fourth pick. Uh, those first few years were great. Uh, but you got to be able to get this guy a second. Running back to be there at twenty-two or twenty-four, wherever the Cowboys are picking. Twenty-six is where 26. the Cowboys are picking. I think that's probably. I think he's going to go before that because he's uh, he's such a special talent. Uh, but boy, that would really be fun to see him with Tony Pollard. 
Uh, I think that that would be a really interesting situation. And, and then you could even make a decision the year after this next year, whether you actually want to keep Tony Pollard, if you really want to uh, make B. John Robinson, your feature back. How far so, down how, I, would you consider a tight end? No, no, I know Dalton, King, Dalton Kincaid from Utah is a popular pick for the Cowboys because they lost Dalton Schultz. Okay. I get that. It's just that the Cowboys have, uh, you know, they got Jake Ferguson and they've, and they've got uh, Peyton Hendershot. Both of those guys looked really good last year. Both of them more athletic than Dalton Schultz. Both of them much better rookie seasons than Dalton Schultz had. I think that they're, I, I just think that there are about two or three tight ends in the league who really make a difference, right? You know, uh, and, and I think everybody else gets by on pretty good tight ends or less. Uh, and, and, and that's what Donnie Schultz was a pretty good tight end. When you've got a difference maker at tight end, it's such a complete difference and such a class above everybody else. But I get your point. Um, I also know that, you know, the team that I still have the most historical um, affiliation with took a tight end very high in Kyle Pitts, and it looks like it's been, you know, a bad pick because they just had nothing They had nothing else to go with him. So it's great to have a nice big tight end, but if you have nothing else to go with him, it doesn't really work out. So Yeah, and, and when Kyle Pitts was coming out, everybody said, oh, this is a generational tight end. Yeah. This, this guy is going to be one of the best. This guy will be immediately the best tight end in football, and that wasn't the case at all. He wasn't. Best tight end in a five state area. So, you know, wasn't the best I, tight end in the state of Georgia. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, ab- absolutely. So, I, I look, you know, the, the great thing about this is you always want to be able to, to, to take the best player available in the first round. And I think the Cowboys can do that now. The, you know, they can look at whatever they want to do and just take the best player. And whether that's, if that is Dalton Kincaid, well, then fine. You know, they can take him. If it's an offensive lineman like Osiris Torrance, fine. If it's, it's B. John Robinson, fine. If it's, you know, I, I think there's a little less pressure now to take, there's a, a lot less pressure now to take a wide receiver with the first, with their first pick. There's a lot less pressure now to take a, a linebacker uh, because they, they resigned Leighton Vander Esch. Uh, there's a lot less pressure now to take a cornerback because of the moves that they made there. So they have put themselves in a situation where they can just take the best player available, which is always the best thing to do. Never well, get uh, pigeonholed here. Once old David Moore gets his computer machine working again and can contact us and we don't have to reach him on one of them telephone lines, uh, we'll have him on and we'll talk about the, the draft. Um it's coming up, you know, this next this next month. Yeah, but uh, until then, um, I think that's a good place for us here, old men talking sports uh, and having technological problems to sign off. Yeah, probably so. Maybe David can take it to that place in Florida where Jerry Fraley took his laptop. I'm sure that place is still in business, Kevin. <laughs> All right, so from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Spoken Layer Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.